This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Damn, we just had Stephanie Mercado from National Association of Healthcare Quality join us on this podcast. And I, I think it is just one of the best conversations I've had all year. I mean, Stephanie is just such an incredible leader in healthcare association management and advancing healthcare professions towards workforce development, specifically with regard to quality. Stephanie, in the years that she's been with NACU, has just really raised the prominence and value. Uh, in the healthcare quality space. You know, I just think about this IOM report that came out years ago. And I mean, it came out, Dan, 22 years ago, and we still can't keep stop talking about it. 100,000 people are dying every year because of medical errors. I mean, that's really bad quality. So I, I just think Stephanie is really doing great work and kind of leading a, a revolution towards quality improvement. Eric, I agree. Stephanie's been such a great colleague in the time that we've known her. I've really discovered, you know, personally that she's so motivated and she's she's such a strong influence in making important things happen. And Eric, the NACU approach and, and Stephanie's work in that has been focused on quality competencies. And we heard her talk about the quality competency framework. And I just love her descriptiveness and how she explains the importance of that, why it's so necessary to have this framework and her passion for the upskilling and reskilling of the workforce to make an aligned workforce with quality competencies that support the health system and support the health industry and value. Yeah, Stephanie Mercado is definitely a key leader in our industry and quality. And I think our listeners today are definitely in for a a great episode. So let's go ahead and hand it over to Stephanie as she joins us in this race to value. Stephanie Mercado, National Association for Healthcare Quality. Welcome to Race to Value. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. And we are happy to have you today. We've been really looking forward to this episode with you this week. And Stephanie, I think about um, your background. You have such a deep knowledge of healthcare issues that have been acquired through almost 20 years of both frontline and executive association leadership. 
You've worked to build healthcare competencies and medical curriculum models, certifications, professional development, training programs. You've led advocacy efforts. And I share a lot of your passion. And also, you and I have a lot in common because we, st- we both started in healthcare at the same time. I remember entering into the healthcare industry when the Two Eras Human report came out by the Institute of Medicine. And I'm, I'm sure you can relate to this as well when you were starting your career. But I remember thinking, when that report first came out, can this be right? Is the American healthcare system really responsible for the deaths of nearly 100,000 people a year due to medical errors? I, I saw a recent profile of you in modern healthcare, and you, you actually made reference to the, the cultural challenge that you observed when you first got into healthcare about two decades ago when this IOM report came out. And at the time, you were saying how there had to be a significant movement towards quality and patient safety. Additionally, you know, there has to be a transition to health value where coordinated care really allows for a dispersion of leadership. And I think about this term, the authority gradient, where historically in medicine, you've had like a physician who is the ultimate terminal degree holder and the expert and everyone kind of follows an autocratic path where if you disperse leadership and you create an interdisciplinary team where everyone is aligned towards patient-centered care and quality improvement, you can really have empowerment in the front line of the healthcare workforce. So I wanted to ask you today, as as we kick off our our time together, what is your take on the empowerment of the frontline workforce in healthcare to drive quality improvement? Are we where we need to be culturally to cultivate a safe healthcare environment to detect, mitigate, and prevent patient harm? I think the answer is not yet. (laughs) So I absolutely agree with you that everyone should be empowered to support quality improvement. And I think the cultural issues you reference are in part, like you said, due to decades of past experiences and decisions really to compartmentalize our workforce when really we've needed to be working much more as a team. To your point on how do we get to those better outcomes when nursing and medicine and executive administration offices are all looking at different goals and setting different objectives, the result is going to be uh, very substantial gaps in quality because we're not all moving in the same direction. I think that it would be quite helpful if we could have those clear quality goals and definitely align the workforce and uh, incentivize everyone to achieve those goals. I think one of the other issues here, though, above and beyond culture, is really that we can't expect healthcare to do better with patient safety and achieve better health outcomes and reduce all the waste that we're seeing if we're not focused on healthcare quality competencies. Healthcare quality competencies, as it stands today, are really not where they need to be. So even if the culture was in a better place and if the environment was ready to uh, take on the path towards value, the fundamental and foundational issue that we need to resolve is that we need everyone to have healthcare quality competencies. And I think that when we talk about things like the the training needs and and where does that have to start, it is something that we really, really have to focus on. And I think that it is one of the unspoken and certainly unmet needs in terms of driving towards better value. So Stephanie, you're talking about the competencies being important, and you mentioned value-based care and aligning 
incentives. And we, we recognize there needs to be 100% alignment with financial incentives, alignment of workforce skill sets. And, and in fee-for-service in the current structure or historic structure, quality improvement, it seems like it's a little bit limited. It can only go so far under those kind of models. So as we're moving towards value and as there's uncertainty in the healthcare reform in the environment right now, interested in your perspective on the value-based movement is value-based care here to stay. What have you been seeing lately, especially with the pandemic? Is it your opinion that things are being accelerated? Are we at risk of moving backwards in the value movement? And what is the effect or what is the role that the quality professionals have to play in that? Yeah, so when you speak of the fee-for-service models, I equate that to the every man for themselves model. And that is absolutely not what is going to get us where we need to be in the future. The focus on value-based care, I believe, will absolutely be accelerating and that we really need to make sure that uh, we are addressing the tremendous cost pressures that healthcare is going to be facing. When I think about where we're going with this, I think that more than ever, we need to be recognizing the codependent relationships between acute care, primary care, long-term care, behavioral health, managed care, et cetera, and put those front and center. And I think that when we talk about the aligned incentives and getting everybody working in one direction, we really have to realize that maybe before COVID, people thought it would be nice to work together cooperatively across the continuum of care. And I believe that people were making small improvements and advances in those areas. But I believe that we are going to have to have a much more coordinated, competent workforce working on healthcare in a way that pushes those uh, outcomes forward and that that will be a matter of not nice to have, but a must have to survive and to really thrive. So I'm excited to see that the artificial barriers that we've had and maybe making some progress to coordinate care across the continuum are being broken down. And I'm hopeful that this necessity to cooperate is coming also with uh, a willingness to cooperate because teamwork, I believe, makes the dream work. And we're going to need each other now, most certainly more than ever. Well, Stephanie, it really takes a village to make this work, this transition to health value. And we are so excited to see how NACU is contributing to the national dialogue and workforce development. Here at the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, we really believe that value-based care begins and ends with the competency of the team and that educating and reskilling the workforce is going to be central to the success of the value-based care movement. And we couldn't be more excited about what NACU is doing to advance value-based care competencies through the development of the healthcare quality competency framework. So help me understand this. So your organization actually went into the market and you convened healthcare quality leaders to develop and validate competencies and quality. And you've, your validated framework categorizes quality work into eight dimensions. You have 29 competencies, 450 plus skills, and all within an, a framework. I mean, Stephanie, that's incredible work. I, I really think our listeners would love to hear more about that. I mean, what is NACU doing to with this industry standard competency set to create the necessary impact with reskilling and upskilling the workforce? And what initiatives are taking place to ensure that the healthcare quality competency framework is hardwired into the practice of quality in our industry? 
first of all, thanks for acknowledging the work that we've done to develop the healthcare quality competency framework. It's been, I think, one of the biggest contributions that NACU has made to healthcare and to quality. And recently we received an award for this work. So I'm really, really proud of it. And I'm really proud of the work that NACU's leadership and staff have done to support this. So I, I want to stop just for a second and talk a little bit about the competency framework and why establishing that as a, a first priority was so important. I believe strongly that uh, standards are important to moving towards progress, and I think that it is very critical that we align towards these industry standard competencies. When we look at education and training in clinical disciplines, for example, we can see that the educational pathways are really well-worn. So let's take medicine as an example. When we think about medicine, we can clearly understand that there is a pathway that starts with medical school, moves on to residency, probably includes a fellowship. We then move into state licensure, board certification, uh, continued certification, continued professional development and lifelong learning. And there's really a strong support system to keep those initiatives moving forward. That is not the case when we talk about quality and safety and the, the pathway towards education, training, and competence. Until a few years ago, there was no standard for quality and safety training. And so while we recognize and acknowledge that there were academic programs that were popping up across the country, really advancing a quality and safety curriculum, what we also recognize is that they were doing that um, on the fly at a local level without the benefit of a standard. And so NACU's contribution was to create that standard. And so I like to liken this to a map. So when we think about wanting to go somewhere, whether it's on a vacation or uh, to get to the, a new grocery store in town, we really need to understand the lay of the land. We need to know where we are, where we're going, and then how we're going to get there. And so having a standard really helps create that roadmap, if you will, so that you can answer all of those questions. This is where I am. This is where I am going and what to be. And this is how I'm going to get there. So that standard was very important. And like you said, we convened uh, industry experts and then validated that resource twice in the market. I'm also pleased in discussions I've had with Governor Levitt that he absolutely appreciates the benefit of standards and has been really complimentary towards our work, which really means a lot to us. With his experience in uh, government and in healthcare in particular, he really understands that and we appreciate his support and advocacy there. In terms of what are we doing in some major initiatives, there's a couple. One of the things that uh, we've always done is supported individual contributors in healthcare quality, and we have offered them education and training and also the CPHQ, the Certified Professional in Healthcare Quality, which is the industry's only accredited certification in healthcare quality held by more than 13,000 people today. But increasingly, as I was working with NACU's board of directors, as much as we're thrilled with the progress that we've made with our certification and the training, and we believe that there's a lot more progress to be made, we also recognize that improving healthcare quality, one healthcare professional at a time, is not going to get us far enough, fast enough to that destination. So from an initiative perspective, we've been doing two really important things. 
First, we have been invited by healthcare organizations into their world, and that is where the pain is really occurring. So NACU is partnering with major health systems and uh, also small rural health systems um, and, and everywhere in between. We're working with payer organizations as well to really help understand how to arm their staff with the competencies they need to do the work. And in some cases, this involves us coming in and actually assessing who is doing the work of quality in an organization. And what's really interesting to me about that is, is that the first question we ask healthcare leaders is, okay, well, if you want to assess your individuals, let's talk about who's doing that work. Could you provide me a list of who you think is doing the work of quality? Well, every time we do that, there's a moment where they sort of sit back in their chair and uh, uh, scratch their head and say, huh. I'm not sure that I know the answer to that question. And herein lies the problem, is that if we're not sure who is doing the work and exactly what they're doing, we are gonna have a really hard time achieving quality goals. So we can identify the people doing the work, assess what the work they're doing, and then we stratify that against our competency framework and show them where there's opportunities for improvement. And then the final thing that we're doing um, is working with academic organizations, acknowledging that NACU's work is very productive in the health systems, and we are happy to help health systems. And like I said, it's where the pain is occurring. But if we move upstream and focus with academic organizations, and if we can get them to hardwire these competencies into their curriculums, I strongly believe that the students are going to be graduating from those programs, ready to work on day one with shared vocabulary, shared tool sets, and uh, shared competencies for quality. And I can go into depth on any one of those, but those are sort of the three main things, supporting the individual contributors, supporting healthcare corporations and aligning their workforce to the competency standards, and then also to supporting the academics from a curriculum standpoint. Stephanie, you referenced your partnership with academic institutions. For example, you have a partnership with Western Governors University. Can you expound upon that idea a little bit and help our listeners understand how that can be transformative as you look to lead a quality improvement effort within our industry? Yes, absolutely. I am very excited about the work that we're doing with Western Governors University. I would love to tell you the story about how we arrived at that. So in working with the leadership at Western Governors, they uh, have a real commitment to the competency-based curriculums and graduating students who are prepared to go to work on day one with the skills that they need. And they recognize that with regards to their nursing programs, that they could expand upon the content they had in quality. And so as an organization, WGU respects and honors other organizations that focus on on uh, competency-based training and learning. And so NACU was seeming to be a great partner. And I'm pleased to say that WGU is the first nursing organization in uh, the world that has hardwired NACU's industry standard twice validated competency sets into their nursing curriculum. And what's really exciting about that is they're gonna have upwards of 5,000 nurses a year who are exposed to our principles level content in healthcare quality. That's going to give them the basic information that they need around patient safety principles, performance and process improvement, a little uh, touch on the data analytics, focusing on some broad concepts in population health, and really helping those nurses understand that while clinical 
nursing quality is absolutely important, that the nurses are working within an ecosystem in healthcare, and they need to understand those capital Q quality competencies as well, so they can contribute to things like improvement projects and more. Additionally, I would say I think one of the very special features about the partnership with WGU is that for those nurses who are in the leadership track uh, within their academic program, they're having the opportunity to achieve the CPHQ, that Certified Professional in Healthcare Quality. And that really is the single biggest marker and designation of someone's competence in healthcare quality. And so I am pleased that WGU is doing this. I'm also pleased that the organizations that are hiring these nurses are not only preferring, but sometimes requiring the CPHQ, because we've got to have the clinical competencies go lock and key with the ecosystem, the healthcare uh, broader quality competencies that are needed to get the work done. So I'm excited about that. And I'm excited to say that there's other organizations that are following WGU's lead. We are also in partnership now with George Washington University in a similar arrangement. And we are also working with Georgetown, who has a master's in quality and safety, who are also hardwiring this content and, and many more to come. Stephanie, this is really exciting to hear your explanation of your vision and how you're already working to achieve this vision of of moving upstream and getting into the universities and hardwiring competencies into curriculum and individual skill set training. So much of what you've been saying as, as you've been responding to Eric's last two questions has just really resonated with me. And I think this is why we became quick friends. You have competency framework. And the ACLC also has a competency framework. NACU's competency framework is around quality for individuals or quality skill sets and quality competencies for individuals. And the ACLC framework or the ACLC Accountable Care Atlas is about competencies for organizations. You talk about these competencies and the standardization being such an important concept. And and we felt the same way since the start when, when Governor Levitt And Dr. Mark McClellan started the ACLC and gave us the mission to identify and understand the competencies required to succeed in value. And then a little bit into that, you and I met and we, like I said, became quickly connected in in our passion for the importance of competencies. I'd just like to have you share your experience in your meeting the ACLC and becoming a member of the ACLC Share with us a little bit about what you think this partnership with the ACLC, why it's important to you, and and what the ACLC can continue to do to help make you as you move forward. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I love the story about how I came to know the ACLC, and that was really because a lot of my uh, peers within other associations had recommended, they, they kept saying, you know, you should be in touch with Governor Levitt. They're doing something around value. And I think they're working on competencies too. And I thought, well, that could be interesting. So I took a look at the ACLC website and I immediately saw the synergies and I reached out to Governor Levin and sent him an email and explained why I thought that there was a good connection there. And he got back to me that day and said, he agreed that there might be a connection and that we should have a deeper conversation. 
So uh, I sent him our first generation competency set and we had a conversation about it. And he quickly introduced me to the leadership at ACLC where I would say we really got to work in terms of understanding how to further leverage those synergies. I think the work that you all are doing with the Atlas and uh, extensions of that work are absolutely necessary and so important in advancing the value agenda. As Eric and I have talked about the synergies with ACLC and NACU, we both acknowledge that value cannot be had without quality and that those are very synergistic and complementary areas that we really need to be focusing on together. So I think our work with ACLC is just beginning and I think that it would be great for you all to continue to get the message out to your constituents, that quality is a lever for value, and having those quality competencies is a foundational necessity for really moving forward on a value agenda. Well, Stephanie, we couldn't agree more, and we are excited about the work that you're doing there with the healthcare quality competency framework, and I completely agree that quality is a lever for health value, but you know we can't just conceptualize it. We have to have data to validate the importance of having a workforce development type of initiative. And, and I understand NACU has done a lot of that surveying of the industry to, to validate that the work that you've done in creating your framework. As I understand, you've gone to a thousand plus individuals and 30 plus hospitals, and you've identified with them through all the dimensions related to um, healthcare quality, where their deficiencies are, and then and really did a, a really impressive assessment I'm just trying to remember a conversation we had recently, but as I recall, you were saying that some of the biggest weaknesses that were identified in your surveying was related to competencies and health value. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the assessment work that you've done and what that data tells you in terms of the uh, overwhelming need for a quality improvement framework within the healthcare industry? Yeah, Eric, thanks for asking about the research that we've done. I'm really excited about it. And uh, you remembered correctly that some of the areas within our competency framework that are performing um, the lowest based on the responses we're getting from the market are those competencies which are really fundamental underpinnings to leverage value. We see opportunities for improvement within population health and care transitions to start. When we look at the research that we have ascertained from the individual contributors who are telling us the work that they're doing in healthcare quality, 48% of those individuals tell us when we ask them if they integrate population health strategies into their work, 48% of those people say, no, I don't do that. When we talk with them and ask them, do you collaborate with stakeholders to improve care transitions and improve processes? 40% of the people responding say, no, I don't do that. Now, certainly there uh, are others who are saying, yes, I do that, and they're showing up at the operational, managerial, and executive levels, but more often than not, they're showing up at the operational levels or they're not doing that work at all. And we know that population health and care transition strategies are going to be super, super important as we pursue value. Another one that always stands out to me is within our uh, area of quality review and accountability. Two areas, two competencies to focus on there. One is relating current and emerging payment models to the work of healthcare quality. 
when we asked the individual contributors who responded to our survey about their work relating current and emerging payment models to healthcare quality, 23% of them identified most with the competencies that were outlined in the operational category. 30% of them identified most with the competencies outlined in the managerial category. And 7% identified most with those in the executive category. And 41% of them say, I don't do that work. Increasingly, it's going to be very important that everyone working in healthcare has a grasp, a, a broad, at least a broad understanding of payment models and how they play out all the way down to frontline care delivery. Another one that stands out is implement processes to promote and facilitate practitioner performance review activities, right? We've got to be talking with practitioners to help them understand what the, the data is showing them about their work where they have opportunities to improve and how we can, uh, again, pursue that value agenda. And when we asked the individuals who responded to our survey, they, they told us 16% said they're working in operational capacities with regards to giving that feedback to facilitate practitioner performance review. 11% were managerial and good news, 36% identified most with the executive level of those competencies. That being said, 36% of those individuals responding said, I don't do that. So we have a, a lot of work ahead of us in terms of being able to really help the uh, workforce understand the quality competencies uh, because they are really underpinning one other thing that we are learning through our research, and this is through research that we are doing actually with health systems. We recently partnered with a health system that has 34 hospitals within their system, and they asked some really interesting questions. They wanted to understand the work that their quality directors were doing across their 34 hospitals in relationship to NACU's quality competencies. And so we uh, put those individuals through the self-assessment. And one of the things that, that they uh, pursued a line of inquiry on was whether or not training made a difference in the level of work that people were performing. And I was very pleased and felt very validated to see the data absolutely supported and, and told us that the more training that people have in quality and safety competencies, the higher level of work they are performing when they are contributing to their organization. And not only that, but the data also suggested to us that when you have that level of training and when you are performing at higher levels, you are invited more frequently to executive meetings like medical executive meetings, for example, uh, executive quality meetings, et cetera, to participate. So we are seeing a very strong connection between the training and the uh, upward mobility and being invited uh, to the party, so to say, and really being able to have an impact at an executive level um, when it comes to quality, safety, and value. Stephanie, um, you, you're, we're talking a lot about worker skill sets and upskilling and giving them the competencies that they need to be successful. But there's another challenge that's kind of an industry challenge that needs to be addressed at an industry level. And I think NACU's been involved with this a little bit. And I, so I'm interested to know what you're doing in, the, in this regard and what your perspective is on it. But the issue is that payers and providers are bombarded with quality measures. You've got CMS star ratings, HEDIS measures, leapfrog, CAPS, 
choosing wisely measures, total cost of care, ACO measures. There's the list is long and overwhelming. And when you've got different contracts, especially in the value space, when you've got multiple contracts with different payers and they each ask for the provider to report on different measures. And for one group, it might be a blood pressure measure is different than the other insurer's blood pressure measure or diabetes measures are different for for different groups uh, in different contracts. Doctors and, and providers and caregivers are overwhelmed with this and they feel like they've become data entry clerks. There's a health affairs article that even reports that physician practices spend more than 15 billion annually just to report quality measures. And on average, they spend 785 hours per physician when dealing with reporting of quality measures. There's been a lot of talk and effort on aligning quality measure sets. And we recognize that this is an important topic, uh, unnecessarily costly. Do you think our industry will be able to get to this point? Can we get past this hurdle, unifying quality measure sets and the support multi-payer agreements? And what's your role in that? First of all, I'd like to say that my heart goes out to those individuals who are really dealing with that administrative burden. It's a lot for them to work through and manage on a day-to-day basis. But I'm an optimist, and I believe that we will find our way uh, towards a solution to this, but that it will also uh, take a long time. And I think that we are going to have to find a way to streamline what is important to us. It seems to me that it is uh, pretty clear that we need to be focused on things that are improving patient safety and reducing waste. And I think it would be great if we could get our stakeholders together to figure out what are the most important things that are really impacting the outcomes with regards to quality, safety, and value. One of the things I'd like to share with you is some research that I've been doing and about standard setting and the importance of alignment. And I always like to look at other industries to say, what other industries have experienced similar challenges with alignment, with harmonization, and and what could we learn from them? I think standards are important in, in any industry. And so the bigger the industry and the higher stakes, I think the more vital that becomes. So I started researching the history of the United States railroads. So if you would humor me for a moment, I could tell you a little bit about that. What I learned is that in the early 1800s, when the railroads uh, first started popping up in North America, they were built by designers that built their tracks for local transport of goods and services only. So they did not contemplate long distance travel. So their standards, Uh, for the tracks were built on the fly at a local level. And this really led to a high degree of variability in design of those tracks. Some tracks were built with four foot gauges and others were built with five foot gauges and everywhere in between, by the way. And it really made it impossible to connect the railways for these long haul trips. So imagine, if you will, the burden that was caused in the mid-1800s due to the lack of ability to communicate between tracks. I have read extensively about the expense and the time and the compromised safety and loading and unloading freight from one train to the next as they transitioned to a new track. It was, must have been unbearable and was totally wasteful. I also learned that as the demand for interregional transportation increased, the capitalists and financiers who really wanted to maximize the revenue of the railway companies 
along with competitive pressures from the customers drove a change. And the change was that the stakeholders had to agree on a standard gauge for the tracks. And so in 1869, North America's first transcontinental railroad uh, was up and running. And not only was it a true feat in engineering, but it was a true feat in cooperation among disparate leaders who could see that the best way forward was not going to be holding on to those old and disjointed isolating systems, but to really align for the purpose of leveraging the entire industry and all the businesses that were supported through that. So then I started thinking back to healthcare and reflected on the fact that CMS is obviously founded in 1965, 55 years ago. And I thought, wonder if we could get on track, wonder if healthcare could get on track. And if we could have our own intercontinental connectedness with our outcome measures and our systems and our process and our competencies. And I think that it's possible. I think it's possible to look at re-engineering healthcare and to really engage stakeholders to find a way to reduce that burden that you spoke of and achieve much better outcomes. So it's going to be hard. There's absolutely no doubt about it, and it will take longer than we want it to. But I think that if we are committed and if we can look at outside examples in other industries and see that the best path forward is through cooperation and standardization and harmonization, that we can be in a really successful place as well. That's a great analogy, Stephanie, and we certainly need to get back on track in the harmonization and standardization of these quality measures are going to be key. And I think another important input into quality improvement is really, it really has to factor in the patient experience as well. And you and I and all of our listeners today, they know that clinical quality can be highly variable across providers. But the average patient assumes that the vast majority of providers all deliver high quality care. It's almost like an assumption that it's just a given. I mean, there's clearly a distinction between consumer and physician definitions of quality. And I wanted to explore that a a little bit with you today. Patients are going to define quality differently. They're going to think of uh, service quality. You know, just like when I fly on an airplane, I kind of assume I'm going to get to point A to point B alive. So then I'm really thinking about the cleanliness of the seat, and I'm thinking about the friendliness of the flight attendant. So in healthcare, patients are are thinking along those same lines, too, about the experience. Was my appointment on time? Was the service quality there? Was it efficient service? Was the staff courteous? And as to clinical quality, I mean, few patients really anticipate a bad outcome, and they don't really do a whole lot of extensive research on provider quality unless they're really facing a grave and terminal illness you know, sometime. And for the ones that do, it seems like the metrics and the methods that we use as an industry to assess quality are really hard to interpret at the patient level. I, I wanted to ask you, you know, as consumers now invariably are going to have to bear more responsibility for their choice of provider, and they have a greater range of options to choose from, how should providers be expanding their quality goals beyond clinical quality to also encompass service reliability, remembering that the ultimate measure of a good outcome for a patient is whether or not their problem was actually solved? Any insights you can share with our listeners today on patient experience, environment of care, care delivery, redesign, patient surveying, patient-centered medical home, I think that would be really of great interest to our listeners today. 
So I, I think that this is a really important topic. And I really think that the patients are absolutely having increased expectations of their providers. And the more that we shift to models that put more of the burden for the cost onto patients, the more their expectations are going to continue to increase. Um, and I think that's especially important to note that this is at a, at a time when many individuals in the United States have a hard time paying for healthcare anyway. And so if they're going to be putting their hard and mo earned money against healthcare, they're going to want to see the value. And so I definitely think that there's a, a sea change upfront. When you talk about the service reliability, I, I completely can relate to that because I think that as much as we do focus on clinical quality, and like you mentioned before, with the myriad of measures that we're all chasing after all the time, um, there's not as much focus on the operational level of quality as needs to be. And I think that when we think about the ability for practitioners to really make a difference, I think that they're going to want to really arm themselves with knowledge, information, and competencies around things that help with that service reliability. One of the things that we talk about at NACU in the training that we do when we focus on performance and process improvement is we talk about the concept of Six Sigma and that we need to reduce the opportunity for defect within the healthcare delivery. And we also talk about concepts in lean, that there's a lot of opportunities to reduce waste. A personal story, I actually was having a, a elective medical procedure. I was to have this procedure in March and uh, due to COVID, uh, went ahead and put that on hold. I was contacted by the hospital who told me in June that they were ready to bring their elective uh, procedures, elective surgeries back online and that I could reschedule. And the process that I had to go through to reschedule that appointment was more than frustrating. <laughs> it resulted in multiple phone calls, wait times of 28 minutes to get to the wrong person who could not help me solve my problem and just get a uh, surgery scheduled. And by the end of that process and going through a process that absolutely had defects in it, that absolutely had opportunities for waste reduction. What I started to question as a patient was, am I going to get good clinical care if they cannot figure out how to properly manage their call center, their scheduling, and any type of uh, follow-up regarding uh, pharmacy preparations that needed to occur. So this is a big, big issue. And I think that we are going to have to absolutely focus on the operational side of quality, get that service reliability up, not only because it's very important to patients and it keeps them safer, but also because healthcare is too expensive. We cannot waste $900 billion a year annually and think that that's going to be sustainable. So lots of improvement opportunities to make on the clinical and uh, service side of the house. Stephanie, this has been an incredible conversation, and it really seems that NACU has defined the industry standard for healthcare quality competency to prepare the workforce for development and improvement in patient care and safety. With 40 plus years of experience in serving healthcare professionals and institutions, NACU is known for turnkey solutions to train quality teams and healthcare professionals broadly, saving them valuable time and resources while supporting their journey to continually improve health outcomes. So my last question for you today is, what is the future of NACU? As you position the organization for the future, what's next? 
for our listeners interested in learning more about NACU and what you're doing, what is the best way for them to plug in? What's next? Well, we are absolutely committed to three things. Number one, focusing on individual contributors and helping them be competent in their job. We want to help them skill up if necessary and reskill if necessary as well. And as I mentioned before, the data from our research is showing that the more training an individual has, the higher performance and the more likely they are to be included in those executive uh, decision-making meetings. And so we feel a, a strong responsibility to help individuals really thrive in the environment in which they work. Second, you know, supporting corporations and helping them prepare their workforce. I have the opportunity to speak with healthcare executives frequently. And before COVID, I was on an airplane multiple times a month meeting with them in their offices. And as I met with them, I said, you know, unless you have a magic wand in your desk, you're not going to be able to abracadabra yourself out of workforce competency gaps. And there's really not a healthcare executive who I've spoken to who's told me, Stephanie, we don't have those competency gaps you speak of. That's not a problem here for us. So I would say that our commitment to supporting corporations is more important now than ever. I think they need us more than ever because their workforces have really been put to the test. And I think that when, as we've experienced COVID and as the healthcare systems have experienced that, and as they look back, we're going to see that the gaps that we had in quality had a bright light shined on them during the COVID crisis. And we know that we need to really address those gaps so that we can find a productive uh, path forward. And then finally, in terms of the academic work that we're doing, we are very committed to moving upstream and solving the healthcare quality competency challenges in the academic programs. And so ensuring that students are graduating these programs and prepared to work with their colleagues on day one of training. I think that the individual academic pathways and the organizations that the people are matriculating from are doing a good job by their students. But the fact of the matter is, is when they get put in that healthcare ecosystem and that melting pot, they need to have a common vocabulary, common tool set, and common competencies to really get the work done and to do right by the patients. So those are the three things that we are focused on on a path forward, leveraging individual contributors, supporting healthcare corporations, and then really working with those academic organizations. So anyone who is interested in working with us on that, or if we can support anyone in any way, we are most excited about doing that. They can reach out to me personally via LinkedIn. And I would love to connect with any of your listeners and start a dialogue on this topic. And also visit our website at www.naq.org. That's N-A-H-Q.org. And uh, lots more information on the website as well. Stephanie Mercado, National Association for Healthcare Quality. Thank you so much for your leadership in this race to value. It's been a great honor to spend time with you today on our podcast, learning more about the great work that you're doing. Thanks. I've been excited to be here and I hope to speak with you again soon. 